millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're talking submarines, which means, yes, I'm going to be going into the history of submarines at some point, and it's it's really weird. I'm just going to put it out there. This is one of these weird ones where we have to unpick legend with reality. Some of the reality could also be legendary, and some of it's just flat out weird. But also, submarines hold a special place in pop culture. How can I say this? Well, it, it's just, where do I begin with this? Well, first of all, let's talk about movies. Now, off and on, depending on which episodes you've listened to, I've mentioned a number of submarine-based movies. But to give you an idea, let's go through some of the classics, shall we? Perhaps the greatest submarine movie of all time is Das Boot, which was originally a miniseries in Germany that was then edited down into a movie, and it's the story of a U-boat. Das Boot is the boat in German, and it's the story of a U-boat in World War II. Then there's Hunt for Red October, which is a sort of Cold War thriller. Then there's Crimson Tide, which is kind of a post-Cold War submarine thriller. Then there's The Enemy Below, World War II again. There's Run Silent, Run Deep, World War II. Ice Station Zebra, which is a brilliant, sweaty sort of thriller, which is a Cold War movie, which absolutely has a submarine in it. There's Greyhound in 2020. It's a Tom Hanks movie, which was he's on the ship above being attacked by U-boats underneath. There was a U-boat in Fast and Furious 8. There's submarines everywhere, including one of the biggest grossing movies of all time, Titanic, which is where I'm going to sort of weave this into, because in 2023, the Titanic and submarines were again in the news for sadly all the wrong reasons. But it's also interesting looking at the reaction to that story online. So there's a lot going on here about something that's sort of kind of technical. Going back to Wolfgang Petersons, he's the director of Das Boot, his attention to detail was amazing. First of all, they actually had a reproduction U-boat. And indeed, the outside, the model U-boat, was so good that it was repainted. And you know, when Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he gets on a U-boat, yup, that's Das Boot boat, as it were. And a lot of people say, hang on, 
Indiana Jones, that he can jump over cliffs, he can use his whip, etc. But he can't hold his breath, but that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how a U-boat operates. So more on that when we get to the history bit. But you can see some of those World War II movies came out in the 1950s and then 60s and so on and so forth. It'd be like every 10 years, there's a good submarine movie that's come out. Some lesser ones as well. U-571, I've mentioned that in the past. It could be K-19 Widowmaker. That's a Harrison Ford movie. Submarines are kind of everywhere in pop culture. And indeed, just that sonar ping... ...is something that you know and instantly your mind is taken to sort of sweaty men staring at a screen trying to work out what's going on. And in my opinion, I don't know this for a fact, but in my opinion, the reason why there are so many good movies about men on the submarines is because everything's there for a drama. It's different if you're talking about an airplane. They only stay up in the air for so long. And there are airplane thrillers, don't get me wrong. A few on, like, hijackings on airplane-type movies, those exist too. And they exist for the same reason. But there aren't as many of those, and there aren't as many classic one of those, as the submarine ones. Because I think the fear of the deep ocean is called thessalophobia. And I think it's a pretty common fear. Which would you prefer? I'm sure you wouldn't like either of these, but would you like to be dropped off in the middle of a forest at midnight with, with no torch, flashlight, whatever you want to call it, no form of illumination, no, no phone with you or anything like that. You're just there in the middle of a forest and you can hear things moving around. Or to be dropped in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean at midnight where you can see nothing. There are no landmarks anywhere. Now, neither of those are good news for you. Certainly not for me. I have no training in such areas. But do you see what I mean? At least on the ground, things can only come at you on the ground. Whereas in the sea, the threat can come from below. And indeed, as you're swimming along in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a part of your brain knowing that there are several miles of water before there is solid ground beneath you. And if you were to somehow swim down that far, you would be crushed. So the other thing I love about submarines is, technically speaking, they're harder to build than a spaceship. Well, what do I mean by that? And, and this has been mentioned by a number of scientists in the past, and it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, but bear with me. Let's imagine you're on the International Space Station right now orbiting planet Earth. Well, obviously to keep the people alive in it, it has an atmosphere. And that atmosphere is basically the same air pressure as you standing at sea level on planet Earth. That is called one atmosphere. So the pressure inside a spaceship is one atmosphere. And the pressure outside a spaceship is zero atmospheres. So the difference is basically one atmosphere. And that is why, and we've all seen it in sci-fi movies, some of those great sweaty sci-fi movies exist for exactly the same reason that you get something like a submarine movie. As soon as the outside gets in, we're dead. Because we cannot survive in space any more than we can survive at the bottom of the ocean. 
that's the difference on a space station. However, if we're talking about a submarine going down into the really deepest, darkest depths of the ocean, we're talking sort of three and a half, four miles down, then at that point inside the submarine is once again one atmosphere of pressure because that's what human beings feel comfortable in. However, outside it's like 300, 350 atmospheres. In other words, it's thousands of pounds of pressure on every square inch. There are some parts, for example, of the Apollo 11 spaceship areas that are only like a millimeter thick. They just need to be airtight. They don't need to contain a huge amount of pressure going on here. Whereas in a submarine that goes to those incredible crushing depths, you need incredibly thick metal to protect you. And of course, any kind of join is something that could fail under that kind of pressure. So windows, so there's almost always some kind of viewing port because otherwise what's the point of being there? But that quite often isn't even made of glass. It's made out of quartz. It weighs many pounds in weight. I, I know I'm using imperial measurements here, but you get the idea. You couldn't just put in some double glazing, go down and see how good that goes. I find it interesting that when even when you swim to the bottom of a swimming pool that has like a dive area, so it's like two and a half, three meters in depth, you can kind of hear your ears pop as you go down to the very bottom and it you can feel a bit of pressure all over your body as you get that low down, just in a swimming pool. So imagine that multiplied by many hundreds of times and you suddenly can see the problem there. So a submarine, therefore, is a technological marvel. And therefore, in a movie, of course, most of this stuff is filmed actually on sound stages. But you add a few special effects, or not special effects, I should say sound effects, sound effects of that creaking and groaning metal. And you can just have an auditory experience of pressure. Then add to that a little bit of tense music. You have a close-up of a man who's been sprayed with some water so it looks like he's sort of dripping with sweat. You can be a very average film director and you've got a tense moment that everybody's in the multiplex sitting there going, oh, you know, I hope he gets out of there okay. So if you like, that's the joy of having a submarine movie. Because even before we add the problem, we have the additional thing of it's these people against the elements. And is their science, is their engineering going to withstand Mother Nature? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And that literal pressure adds to the overall experience. In my opinion, the most pleasing thriller on a submarine is Crimson Tide, where basically the setup is... There's some kind of civil war or potential civil war in Russia and some of these breakaway people have managed to get into a nuclear bunker and then Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington are in a submarine. This is directed by Tony Scott, brother of Ridley Scott. He's a really impressive director. And this nuclear submarine, you know, we're now at the stage where these submarines can, can go at the bottom of the ocean, of shallow oceans, undetected, then come up to the surface and launch dozens of nuclear warheads at a target and a nuclear submarine is the most powerful weapon humanity has ever created for better or for worse it is worth pointing that out and so what happens is they all know this tense situation going in russia and then 
they get a partial message. Some of the message comes through saying you need to launch, but the message is not complete. And then it turns into a debate between Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington. Should they launch? Shouldn't they launch? If they don't launch and the Russians have, they have just let down the whole of America. But if they do launch and Russia hasn't, they're going to start World War III. And they just don't know, they don't have enough information to make that decision. And as you're sitting there, you're clearly meant to side with one side more than the other, but the other side does have a point. And it's, it doesn't get much more sweaty than you've got submarine to submarine combat, you've got them going down to sort of crush depth, you've got the classic close the hatch scene, the amount of movies in, it could be in space, it could be in some kind of submarine movie or indeed other underwater films as well i'm thinking of things like there's a christian stewart movie called underwater which is a great cracking sci-fi underwater thriller and the abyss which is also james cameron where that kind of thing i gotta hold on i want to get those guys out of there you gotta shut the hatch or the whole thing's gonna go down it's the classic thing to protect the many, you have to kill the few. But that doesn't make you feel any better as you shut that hatch. And it's usually the hero sort of screaming in frustration. Again, this stuff writes itself. Incidentally, in submarines, in the whole of World War II, there was only ever one submarine-on-submarine contact. It's just basically never happens. And World War II is the time which had the most submarines in combat in the whole of history. And even then it only happened once. Generally, submarines hunt surface vessels, destroyers, merchant ships, etc. They are out there to attack unsuspecting shipping rather than trying to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with another submarine, which is incredibly hard because, of course, it's a three-dimensional space. They could be above you, below you, at an angle etc so it just doesn't quite work in terms of day-to-day -day realities because again you don't actually have a porthole to be looking out in any way there's not a lot you can see if you're let's say 300 meters down which actually the nuclear submarines and things like that modern submarines they find it very difficult to go down lower than about a thousand meters so that, that's like a kilometre down. Therefore, it gives you an idea that if we're three and a half miles down, you need some very specialist equipment. So with all that in mind, you can see that submarines are just a great story to have. And I wouldn't say you'd necessarily want to watch a whole weekend of submarine movies. Like I say, you start seeing the same beats. The hatch scene, the torpedo scene, the everybody sitting there staring at the screen with the sonar going ping. Things like that you're going to see again and again. But you could absolutely, let's say once a week, see some of these. And even the older ones still hold up. They're still a good movie. And so I, I'm a big fan of the world of submarines. And I don't think they're going anywhere soon to, into oblivion or anything like that. However, what I would add to all of this is... The fact that submarines generally, we very rarely interact with them. I find this sort of so weird. Most of us have been on an airplane, for example. They are a technological wonder. But how many times have you actually been on a submarine and then it's submerged? I mean, I've been to some in a museum. That's not quite the same thing. But the answer is once. Once in my life, in Tenerife, I went on to a tourist submarine. I'm going to guess that this thing went down about 10, 15 metres. 
In other words, if anything went wrong, it was very easy to come back up again. But what I found interesting is, the submarine had a red top to it, and they pointed out they had cameras on it, and once we went below five meters, the red wavelength of sunlight is absorbed by water. So after that, you only have, in essence, the blue shining through. And this is why everybody kind of looks cold. It also means great for lighting and stuff like that, because in a movie, because everyone kind of looks slightly alienish. And I just remember the camera looking at this top of this submarine that I knew was red. I saw it being red, but now staring at it, it was black. That's what it had defaulted to. So it's just such an alien world, and you only have to go down five meters to start feeling how alien it actually is. Obviously, this particular submarine had loads of portholes to do the viewing of, of the fish and all that kind of stuff, and it was a lovely day. But it does show you how expensive they are and how they can't afford to fail in any way that as an average human being on planet Earth, you're actually highly unlikely to interact with a submarine. I find it interesting. People have been talking about bringing on women into the armed forces, and this has been going on for decades, and I think it's personally a very good thing. But it wasn't until the 1990s in the Royal Navy that they started allowing women to actually be crew members on submarines. They'd already for years been on surface vessels, but for some reason it just took them a while before they allowed the ladies to go deep underwater. I don't know why. Chances are misogyny, okay? I can probably sum it up in one word. Patriarchy, something like that. But what we've got then, and what's interesting is... While I talk about things like Hunt for October or Das Boot, etc., there is elements of this stuff. Das Boot, for example, is quite an accurate portrayal of a U-boat crew in World War II. But generally, they're a bit more fantastical, particularly something like Hunt for October. Quite frankly, the deck there actually looks more like something in a Star Wars movie than an actual Soviet-era nuclear submarine vessel-type situation. But hey, it's a cool film. I love that film. And it's great that Sean Connery is playing a Lithuanian. They make a very big point there. And this was lesser known in the 1990s. Lithuania, not part of Russia. And he decided very bravely to play that Lithuanian submarine captain as Scottish. As only Sean Connery can. I digress. Hopefully I've sold you that there's lots of great submarine underwater sweaty goodness for you out there and i've mentioned james cameron he's going to pop up again a little bit in a minute but first of all i'm going to take you on the weird and wonderful journey of the history of the submarine so it seems to me that the idea of going deep under the water has held a basic fascination along with the idea of flying up in the sky with the birds, to swim with the fishes and to soar with the eagles, something like that. And therefore there's lots of stories, and, and indeed it's interesting that you get something like the ancient Greeks, they went out of the way to specifically have a god of the oceans and water, Poseidon, you all know about him. So it shows you how important this stuff was to these people, it wasn't just it's land, and then we need the watery bit to basically drink from, but actually it shows you how important it was. Poseidon was one of the key gods, for example. With that in mind, yes, you all know about Daedalus and Icarus and the completely legendary idea of them trying to fly high into the sky with wax gluing feathers to their arms. 
All of this is obviously completely impossible and is clearly legendary. However, there was a guy called Alexander the Great. And what's interesting is, at no point in any of the contemporary chronicles about him do we get a story about Alexander doing some underwatery stuff. But persistently and consistently throughout the medieval era onwards, this myth arose. And it wasn't just in Europe. There are Arabic texts showing this, that at some undisclosed point during his reign, he basically had a large glass bell in some way cast for him, but specifically made out of glass. And basically it was lowered down into an ocean or sea, and he got to have a look at the fishies. And there are some people out there saying, ah, this is the first example of a submarine. No, it isn't. It doesn't exist. If the contemporaries didn't write about it, then clearly it's a myth that's been added later on. Okay, fine. Then we get to something that sounds a bit more credible, but is again hotly contested. We get the turtle in 1776. Now the turtle, and by the way, I am skipping past centuries of people drawing stuff on paper and saying, I think this might work with no follow-up whatsoever. Maybe some of these people did build these submarines and then failed to tell anybody about what happened next. Maybe they also built them and they failed. You know, they just sunk and therefore they were useless. Maybe some of them took their inventors with them. We just don't know. This is the way history and archaeology works. It doesn't work with an absence of facts. Oh, nobody's talking about that, therefore it must be true. No, that's not how facts work. Instead, you actually need some hard evidence. And if you like, the turtle in 1776 is on the very edges of what possibly might have actually happened. So the idea is this. The most powerful navy in the world in 1776 was... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skide trætte af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakre. 
If you're a rebel, you might want to start getting rid of the Royal Navy, except the Royal Navy's rather good. They were the premier power in the world, as demonstrated just a few years earlier in the Seven Years' War at the Quiberon Bay, where basically the Royal Navy decided to attack the French during a full-blown storm and won. And then a few years after the American Revolution, we've got Nelson doing all his awesome stuff against the French once again. And you might be saying I'm picking on the French, but France had the second best navy in the world, and they were nowhere near the Royal Navy. So therefore, if you are a young upstart colony who's trying to throw off the shackles of colonialization, then you might just want to start sinking ships. Problem is, you don't have any, and even if you did, your crews won't be as skilled as the crews of the Royal Navy, and you will lose. Because that's what the Royal Navy does to other navies. They make them lose. So, there's an ingenious idea of basically building this, this one-person submarine that the majority of it was indeed submerged. The best way to think of this is imagine somebody sitting down on a chair with basically a handle in front of them and a handle behind them and encased in wood which was lacquered so it was waterproof with a little turret at the top a very small visor area that they could look out and the idea was that this was basically it, it was never fully submerged and it is the first design to rather than have paddles and things like that it's the first one to have screw propulsion so a screw propeller but this was hand-cranked, so how fast or effective that would be. I don't know. And basically, the principle was a fairly good one. It was meant to slowly make its way across a bay, and attached to it was some barrels. And the idea was it would get up the side of HMS Eagle, it would then screw a little hole into the side of HMS Eagle, which is not enough to make it sink for the record, but then with that little bit of a hole, they could then jam in the, basically a, in essence, a cork, to attach the floating barrel of gunpowder, set fire to the gunpowder, and then move away, basically inventing a naval mine. All of this sounds like an awful lot of hard work, and just you just try swimming 100 metres. That's hard. Now, trying to get across uh, a, a bay, let's call that 100 metres, but you're having to only do it with your wrists, as you're, in essence, you are slowly working a screw propeller, this is why there's a lot of people who are saying this probably never happened because everything I've just told you has been written down on the American side, but they admit that the mission was basically aborted or unsuccessful. From the Royal Naval side, HMS Eagle never once wrote about anything to do with it being attacked in Bay. So, I mean, maybe the Royal Navy's lying, but there's, there's just no eyewitnesses. The, the Americans admit that it basically failed, therefore the British had no idea about it, and therefore, and seeing it was submerged, nobody saw it. Now, a number of mainly American scholars have, have managed to pull together some money to see, would this work? With 1776 technology, does the turtle actually work? Is it actually watertight and things like that? And the answer is yes. The rather flawed design does actually work but again that's not quite the same thing as saying the turtle definitely existed so i spent quite a lot of time talking about the first semi-potential submarine then there were various other attempts to try and come up with this stuff so for example we get into the 1860s and the plongeur is a french 
which basically is the French for plunging, uh, which is what you want from a submarine, is the first one with an actual engine rather than human. Uh, basically, you're, you're using humans to sort of manhandle the thing under human power, if you like. But similarly, in the 1860s, during the US Civil War, both sides actually created submarine craft. They weren't using the engines. That was the French first. And the Confederate submarine Hunley has the distinction of the first ever submarine to sink an enemy ship. So all of this is beginning to happen in the middle of the 19th century. None of this is particularly threatening the Royal Navy yet. Then we get, and I always have difficulty with Polish names, so apologies for this, we get Stefan Drzewski, I think that might be close to what his name is, in 1881, coming up with the very first electric engine for a submarine, and he built that for the Russian Empire. And we don't get until 1900, with the French again, the idea of the diesel electric. So everything else prior to this, like the electric engine in the 1881, how do you charge it? The idea of a diesel electric, which in essence is a hybrid. That's what the term we would use today. The military have been using hybrid engines for 120 years, which is a really counterintuitive fact, okay? But once we nail the diesel electric, then things really start exploding. So perhaps that's the terrible choice of words. But suddenly, submarines are kind of viable at that point. And to give you an idea, in World War I, guess which country had the most submarines in the world? It was the Royal Navy. They weren't shy about looking at new technology. And by 1914, at the outbreak of World War I, they had a total of 74. But interestingly, these are 74 submersibles. Only 15 of them were ocean-going. What we would consider a modern-day submarine, you know, could dive to a significant depth, actually weather itself out in the Atlantic, that kind of thing. By comparison... Germany built their first U-boat in 1906, and yet by the outbreak of World War I, they had a total of 20. Now, again, not all of those were actually U-boats that were ocean-going, but Britain ruled the waves, and it turned out ruled under the waves, too. However, it was in World War I that we started to see the rise of submarine warfare to start choking off supply chains, and it was Germany that did it. Their events of World War II make the U-boats far more famous, but Churchill, in World War I, as the head of the Admiralty, he recognised the danger of the U-boats and realised that Britain had got away with it, but was vulnerable in this area. So when it came to World War II, he took the transatlantic shipping and the wolf packs of U-boats attacking it as one of his most important priorities, because he recognised, in essence, Britain could be knocked out of the war and potentially starved into submission if the U-boats completely took over the North Atlantic. So that shows you how important it was. Of course, round about the same time, 1912, we have RMS Titanic sailing across the Atlantic and, very famously, on its maiden voyage, five days into it, hitting an iceberg and sinking. What has this got to do with anything, Jem? You can't fool me, the Titanic is not a submarine. You're right. <laughs> okay? Well done, you. However, 
One of the interesting things is it's a little unclear as to why the Titanic shipwreck has become so well known. I've mentioned in the past that there was a time when I worked for the tourist board and I remember having a tour of the Royal Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And basically it's a history of the Royal Navy, which therefore means it's one of the most important naval museums in the world. And the curator who was walking me around showed me that there was a tiny little area on the Titanic. And interestingly, they had a little sink of water at the same temperature of the North Atlantic. So it's about two degrees. And you put your hands in it and it's cold. It, I mean, it feels icy. It's obviously not ice, but it feels really cold. And you realize that you're going to die of hypothermia before you're going to die of drowning, quite frankly. And it was really interesting. And we had this conversation because he told me the one piece of feedback they keep getting about the museum is why isn't there a bigger exhibition on the Titanic? And his point was perfectly reasonable and academic, which was the Titanic wasn't an important moment in maritime history. Now, this might surprise you, but ships sink all the time. It's a thing that's happened throughout history. Just ask the ancient Greeks, for example. So it was by no means the first shipwreck. Nothing that happened at the Titanic wasn't already known. It didn't rewrite history. People knew that you shouldn't be traveling fast through iceberg fields to give you times to get out of the way of them. There were a number of human errors, communication errors, etc., and a bit of bad luck that led to the Titanic happening. But, I hear you say, Jem, 1,500 people lost their lives on the Titanic. That's got to make it one of the worst shipping disasters in history. And the answer is, not even close. Now, admittedly, this happened a generation later, but allow me to chill your bones for a minute. In January of 1945, the German ship, German transport ship, packed full of civilians called the Wilhelm Gustloff was attacked by a Soviet submarine. It launched a torpedo. The ship was clearly designated civilian. It was hit and it sunk and nine and a half thousand people drowned. All souls lost. By comparison, Titanic is chump change, basically. I'm not quite sure why Titanic has captured this imagination. If you want to learn more, don't go to the Maritime Museum in Greenwich, although they've got lots of other truly fascinating stuff there. But, of course, one of the biggest grossing movies, and when it first came out, and indeed for over 10 years, the single biggest grossing movie of all time was Titanic. Directed by James Cameron, it came out in 1997 and it re-energized everybody's imagination about this disaster. It won 11 Oscars, a joint record, by the way, and it's widely considered to have the worst screenplay to have ever been nominated for an Oscar. It's very much a technical achievement, and bravo to James Cameron. As I said again in a previous episode... James Cameron has this passion about the deep sea, which I say good luck to him. And he puts his money where his mouth is. Because more than a decade later, James Cameron has been tinkering around with Titanic and it's about to be relaunched as Titanic 3D. But he wasn't planning to be there on the red carpet. 
Instead, his pet passion was to go to the deepest part of the ocean in the world, the Marianas Trench. Now, to give you an idea, if you were to get Mount Everest from sea level all the way up to its highest high peak and shoved it into the Marianas Trench, Mount Everest wouldn't hit the top of the water. That's how deep it is. It is more than four miles down. Crushing depth is way beyond that. You are more than a mile below the point at which the furthest reaches, the, the last tiny glimmer of sunlight can penetrate the ocean. This is cold. This is dark. And this is as lonely and dangerous a place as you will find on planet Earth. The first people to go there were in the 1950s, and they were, in essence, a sort of semi-military crew by the Americans, and they went down in basically that kind of diving bell type thing I just described with Alexander the Great. Obviously, no glass. It was a massive spherical ball. Obviously, a sphere means that the pressure is evenly spread out over its, over its hull, with a massive quartz prism in it for them to have a look out. And I do like the fact, although this might be changing soon, that more people have walked on the moon than have been in the bottom of the Marianas Trench. This was certainly true. James Cameron was the first person since that initial exploration, more than 50 years earlier, he was the next guy down there. And he spent a lot of money and spent a considerable amount of effort creating the right kind of submarine to get down there safely. He was in the middle of that when Titanic 3D was coming out and the film studio said, fine, go down there, but you get up immediately and you fly back to LA because we spent millions on this rebuild and we can't not have you there. So to Cameron's enduring credit, he managed to do both those things in the same weekend because James Cameron might actually be the Terminator. With all that in mind, just sitting there going, that's pretty impressive, but here's the kicker. The Titanic has become, weirdly, a bit of a tourist attraction. And sadly, in June of 2023, a civilian submarine called Titan went down there with five crew on board, or five passengers on board, and it had a catastrophic failure. There was an implosion. So in other words, everybody died within a second. Unlike the submarine movies where you get these hisses of water at that depth, which is three and a half miles down, you're dead in a second. By the time you realise what's happened, you're gone. And it's not like you're going to be swimming and slowly running out of breath. The crushing temperature would have just pulverised all your soft internal organs. You're dead. And it's probably the nastiest. It's quick, but it's one of the nastiest ways for you to die. Grim, I know. What happened, however, is some noises were heard, and it therefore led to this, what turned out to be false hope, of people thinking maybe we could send some unmanned underwater vehicles down there to try and find them, etc. And when they eventually found part of the submarine, they knew the whole thing had obviously just imploded and that was it. All five souls lost. But it's what happened next that really disappointed me, if you like. So throughout the 21st century, because of all the various problems in the world, there are a lot of people jumping onto boats and heading across the Mediterranean. These people are trying to flee all kinds of nasty conflicts or political persecution, etc. And there's great debate about immigration into countries. 
fine, have the debate, but what we shouldn't be doing is sort of thinking, good, that one sunk, that's less of these people to worry about. That's absolutely terrible. Every single one of those people is a human being, and we don't want anybody to die. Everybody has the right to live without conflict, without danger to their lives. And do you know what? I don't think I'm going to get really anybody in the world disagreeing with that. But a lot of the people who've been trying to highlight the plight of these immigrants trying to get on onto these ships, etc., and half swimming, half sailing their way to safety, some of these people were showing a huge amount of schadenfreude over these people in the submarine at the Titanic. Now, it was revealed that there was a lot of question marks over the safety of this ship, and indeed, James Cameron himself had already sort of talked a bit about it and said, I don't think they should be operating. And James Cameron knows what he's talking about. And it was weird that he was kept being spoken to as an expert on this within 12 months of Avatar 2 coming out, which how many other film directors do you ask for nautical advice? But it's valid because he is an expert in both areas. It was just unusual, if you like. But on top of this, there were basically people saying, because this ship, this submarine, was scratch-built, it was incredibly expensive to get on board. So there was a billionaire and his son on board, etc. And there were a lot of people saying, ah, oh, well, if you're going to be stupid and think that something like that's going to work, you get what you deserve. No. Again, let's go back to, these are human beings. The billionaire's son was 19. He'd done nothing in his life, and he never will. He's dead. And so this is the thing that sort of makes me pause for a moment. Just because someone's poor doesn't make them less valid, okay? They are still a human being. But just because someone's rich doesn't make them less valid either. Yeah, I mean, fine, they start doing odious, terrible things. Judge them for their actions. Absolutely. But some people get rich because they're good at business and they build a career and things like that. You know, they're not inherently evil or have done evil in and of themselves. Now, I'm not asking you to stick up with a whole bunch of very strange behavior from the billionaires of this world. But if people die, that's as serious as it gets, in my opinion. And I think there needs to be a pause about the loss. There is, for example, a wife and mother out there who has simultaneously lost her husband and son. That woman's life is completely destroyed and no amount of money is going to make her happy. I would just like you to, to pause for a moment. This is a salient reminder that even in the 21st century, we've got all these technological marvels, submarines are still fundamentally quite dangerous. I will leave you on a more upbeat, silly moment about submarines, which is going again back to World War II. One of the questions you might be thinking as they go around is, well, first of all, back to Indiana Jones. I said I'd mention this later. Oh, hang on. Before I do all this, guys, click subscribe. If you give us a like, that's great. If you could share this, I'm on Twitter at GemDaduchu. Fine. Say hello to me. All that good stuff. Yes, yes, yes. But the thing about the U-boats, because of those diesel engines, is the electric engines didn't last that long. They didn't go underwater all the way from Germany to the middle of the North Atlantic. They had to also get resupplied as well. So actually, a U-boat spent most of its time above the water, and it submerged when it started seeing enemy vessels, or any kind of vessels, just to stay safe. And so therefore, Indiana Jones would be absolutely fine standing on the deck of a U-boat all the way to wherever the Ark is being unlocked. That's one thing. The other thing and this is genuinely true from World War II, is imagine when you flush the toilet, it basically ejects it out into the water. But of course, 
if you're submerged and the water pressure is greater on the outside, you can't do that because the water would just instantly start flooding into the submarine through the toilet. So the instructions on how to go to the bathroom in a German U-boat was stuck on the inside door of the U-boat. And it was a whole page. It was that complicated to get rid of your human waste. And what was hilarious is on one occasion, just off the coast of Scotland, the U-boat commander managed to read the instructions wrong, or got a little bit sloppy, did it wrong, and flooded the U-boat. All crew had to get off the U-boat and fortunately, everybody was safe and they were picked up by the British Army on the coast of Scotland and they were put into a prisoner of war camp. So, you know, it all ended relatively safely for them. But obviously, that is a very red-faced commander who managed to sink a U-boat with a toilet. That's it from me. And as always, another episode coming soon. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.